Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Zachary Smith, and I will be your host for today's interview. It is my great pleasure to speak today with Doreen Manuel about the recently released second edition of Brotherhood to Nationhood, George Manuel and the Making of the Modern Indian Movement, which Doreen co-authored with Peter McFarlane. The book tells the life story of Doreen's father, George Manuel, who was a seminal figure in the emergence and development of the modern Indigenous rights movement in Canada. A three-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, he laid the groundwork for what would become the Assembly of First Nations and was the founding president of the World Council of Indigenous Peoples, an advocacy organization that fights for the rights of Indigenous peoples internationally. A critical reference point for three generations of Indigenous activists and intellectuals, Manuel's commitment, politics, and vision are now again accessible to a new generation of readers, courtesy of Doreen and Peter, and Between the Lines Press uh, Books in Toronto. Welcome to the podcast, Doreen, and thank you for being here. Thank you for your invitation. Great. Uh, Now, Doreen, before we jump into the book itself, I wonder if I might begin by having you tell us a bit about yourself and a bit about your background. Sure. I'm the sixth child of... uh, George Manuel and Marceline Manuel. And um, my dad was Sokotmik and my mom was Tanaha. So the English words are Shushwa for my dad and, and Kootenai for my mom. And they were both residential school survivors. So I was raised by two residential school survivors. And all of us six children, um, George and Marceline had six children. And I was the youngest of, of those children. And um, all of us except two, the two oldest, we all went to residential school. And then um, when my mom and dad split when I was about three, um, he got together a little later with a Sukhwapmik woman and uh, they had three children. And then he had a, a, another child with a Sami woman from Finland. Uh, so it's complicated, like I'm the youngest. I was raised as a youngest child, but I'm not really the youngest. I'm kind of in the middle if you include like all of the children. Um, I um, I always remember my dad saying things like, you know, and he told this to all of us, choose something. doesn't matter what you choose, but choose something where you can participate in some way in making the lives for our Indigenous people better and hold yourself to a standard of making sure that every day that you uh, work, if you work for our people, that every penny that you make, that you give them their money's worth because you're working for the generations who are yet unborn. So I grew up learning those kind of principles. And I know my older brothers and sisters did also because we had a lot of time with him. When he had his second um, children from his second family, his health was already starting to fail. And um, by the time they were, you know, even just little children, his health was failing. So 
our family is a bit complicated in a lot of different ways. And um, uh, we grew up not really that connected with our culture. We grew up off the reservation, uh, but we all got reconnected as we got older. So I went back to the reservation periodically for visits to my cousins. And so I got to know there's a make a bit. And when I got out of residential school, I uh, was sent to go live with my Tanaha grandmother on the St. Mary's Reserve in Cranbrook. And I started off my career just kind of looking for something for myself. And what I really wanted to be was a veterinarian. But what I didn't know at the time was I couldn't seem to pass like uh, science classes. And what I didn't know at the time, it was the blockage, the emotional blockages from the traumas that happened to me in residential school that stopped me from being able to really learn and be a, a, a student of academia. So I dropped that dream and I picked up dress design and I studied under an Austrian fashion designer in Vancouver when I was in my late teens and started a career in that direction. But, it, you know, it was really hard to survive in, in that occupation at that time because people didn't care about Indigenous fashion. So I wound up doing a, a variety of other things before I found my way to teaching life skills. And I was really successful at that. I worked with recovering heroin addicts in the downtown east side, and I developed programming for women escaping violent relationships and programming for children, um, preventative measures training for sexual abuse intervention and prevention for children, and was very successful with that, and also anti-gang violence. And um, I built, a, you know, I helped to build a daycare in my community. I got very involved in the social wellness and, until I burned out. And that's when I found my way to the film industry. And when I found my way over there, it was with the intent of making a film about my dad's life. And um, that's such an enormous film, I still haven't made it. I've made several smaller films or films where he's featured, but no complete and total film about his life yet. And instead, what wound up happening was I wound up being an advocate for equity and inclusion. And I'm really well known now in Canada. I've built a platform for myself for these issues. And I work to um, help get people, our people into the industry because it's a multi-billion dollar industry that we have been denied access to. Because of our history of genocide and oppression, we haven't had the opportunity to break into the industry. We weren't even really involved in the industry until the 70s because of all of that oppression. You know, we lived, the film industry started in the late 1800s in Canada, yet we were confined by law to stay on the reservation through the past system. We were living through residential school and the 60s scoop and the white paper policy. How were we supposed to think about art? And it was in the 70s that we finally became freed up to start working in that direction. And then you see this wide number of people across Canada getting into the industry. And my father used to always say, media is really important for our people because that's how we build audience for our political initiatives, business. It's how we can, it's a tool we can use to preserve language and culture. And the media technology that we have today is nowhere near what it was back then. 
but still he saw the value in it, the importance of having our people working at all the different media outlets across Canada. And he used to say he wanted to see every single uh, band have a media center in it so that they could uh, influence the audience the way that the Canadian and provincial governments do. So I've been highly involved in education uh, most of my life and um, media slash education during this last part of my life. And I've been recognized and awarded for a lot of the work that I've done. Great. Thank you very much. Um, in the preface to this second edition of Brotherhood to Nationhood, um, Peter McFarland notes that while he was the sole author of the book's first edition in, in 1993, that Brotherhood to Nationhood was very much the product of a deeply rooted friendship between himself and the Manuel family. Uh, many of whom provided research insight and guidance throughout the various stages of his writing. For context, could you speak about your relationship to the book, um, its first edition, and more recently, how or even why you came on board as a co-author for the second edition? Well, that really starts with uh, the fourth world. Uh, I was, I'm the holder of the... Um, you know, my brothers and sisters signed a document stating that I represent the George Manuel name. So I was getting contacted by libraries and universities from across Canada who used the fourth world, giving them permission to photocopy because there were no copies out there. And um, it troubled me when I started to see on the internet that people were selling copies of the fourth world for $5,000. And it upset me because I knew my father wouldn't want people, you know, gaining finances from his words in that way. So I worked to get it republished. And once I got that republished, um, the Peter brought up the idea of republishing Brotherhood to Nationhood. And I said, well, only if we're going to correct the things that you missed in the book. And that intrigued him. And so he was on board right away because one of the things I felt was really missing was the woman's voice. You know, like I was a little girl, but I saw it back then, how involved the women were in fundraising. And my father would never have made it anywhere if it hadn't been for my mother. Her and all the other women in our community, it's talked about in the fourth world, and I think to some degree now it's talked about in Brotherhood to Nation. But... Um, and it's widely known that the women were just incredible fundraisers and organizers. And they're the ones that held the home fires and kept the home family together while the men were out doing, you know, traveling across the territories and, and planning politically. And they traveled with their husbands, like for the more local trips. And they organized and cooked and they just did all the backbreaking work to to create what is today, you know, the foundation that we have today. So I told Peter that. And then also I said I wasn't happy with the way that he wrote about um, uh, the rejection of funding, that he kind of dismissed it. And I said, you know, you weren't there. I lived through it. I was there on the ground. I was a 15-year-old teenager and I was on the butchering crew, you know, the men would all go out hunting and they'd bring back meat for the whole community. And I was there cutting up deer meat and tanning hides and 
and we were like gardening together. I was out in the hay fields. I was really fit back then because I had studied ballet most of my young life. And so I was super muscular and I was out chucking 15 pound bales around like they were toothpicks, you know, with all the men. And we worked and we loved it. And we were so happy. I would go home with my dad when I was younger, like 10, 11, 12, and everybody was drunk. I remember this one scene driving through the village and sitting in the back seat of my dad's car. And there's a lot of these men were standing around, each with a bottle in their hand, all swaying around, drunk, laughing, drinking. Two little babies sitting in a mud puddle with soaking wet diapers, all muddy and dirty. And we drove past that. And I just didn't even know what to think. And dad started to talk about this is what, you know, we've come to. And he had, he had a long lesson for me as he talked, but I lost half of it because I was so sad by what I had seen. But when the rejection of funding happened, oh my God, the community sobered up overnight. We became proud, dignified overnight. It was like nothing I'd ever seen and nothing I'd ever been a part of. And I was captivated by it. I became a warrior during those times. That's how we all want our warrior spirit. Like a lot of people know the Nisqanlith and First Nations as being real, um, kind of kick-ass, kind of ready for a battle at any moment. Well, that's why. A lot of us that are my age now in our 60s, we were there. We lived through that rejection of funding, and that was like a time. I mean, I can't even explain it in words what it did for me as a kid. When you look at the other kids that are 15 and are suicidal, and I was suicidal, that are, had lived through horrors like the residential school, and then you live through a period of time like that where you just go back to all the old ways and you just become real, you find yourself in that period of time. We went, we were sweat lodging, we were ceremonies. And and then around that time too, I was out at all the roadblocks and demonstrations and protests all over, all over the lands. Like we shut down a road there in Chase, a couple of roads actually. And then at some point in time after that, because I had this real power in me, I wound up in Vancouver and I was attending all the Leonard Peltier um, his extradition hearing. It was a whole bunch of us young people. We were all there every single day, finding a way to survive and live in Vancouver so we could be there for him. You know, it just bred this whole movement. I think that we went through the rejection of funding at Nisqanlith, but all the other communities were going through similar different things and the young people were emerging up. And I told Peter, you've missed out on some of these really incredible things that happened. And so I said, if, you know, you want to republish it, we need to include those stories. And then plus, just something a little bit vain and funny. He made a mistake about my birth date in the uh, first edition. (laughs) And he had me like 10 years older than I am. (laughs) So I had all these old men hitting on me all the time. And I was like, why are all these old men hitting on me? And my sister said, because they think you're older than you are. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. Peter's got to change that. (laughs) But then it didn't get republished until now. And we've been able to fix, fix that. 
Um, now, you made a point earlier in your own preface to the second, second edition, which really informed how I came to read the book as I went along. And as, that was when you wrote, in a book that's primarily about politics and the activism of our peoples, family details are important. And, and you touched upon um, aspects of, of it already. Um, and the influence of community and family, um, be it in the development of a character or a political career, appear quite early in the book. Um, George's story begins in the 1920s, so only a few decades after colonial disease, settlement, and dispossession altered the fabric of Indigenous communities in British Columbia. Um, I was wondering if you can give us some sense of what was like for Indigenous peoples in the BC interior in your father's early years, and the influence of elders such as George's grandfather, Dick Andrew, who lived in this time of dispossession and settlement. Um, his influence in, in rooting young people, both culturally, um, but also for the struggle that, that lay ahead for them. Well, everything was um, paid for by them. Like there was no government money. I think that's the first important thing to know and remember. And there was no social media. So if you needed to go somewhere, you need to get into a car or on a train or somehow get to that place. And, you know, when you look at how far apart some of the communities are, it was difficult to unite people. And just prior to, like, prior to my dad getting involved, he was actually mentored and influenced by Andy Paul. And Andy Paul was Squamish, and he was the first Indigenous leader to unite the Indigenous people across Canada during a time when it was still illegal for us to meet. It was illegal for Indigenous people to gather in groups larger than three. And yet Andy Paul, when you read the memoirs about him, you find out how, how crafty and strategic he was to be able to do that. And so uh, after Andy Paul passed and my father kind of picked up the leadership role at that time, he, um, he taught those kind of lessons about unity and, you know, things like um, one time somebody told me from Mount Curry, Mount Curry is a community way up in the mountains. It's surrounded by huge, enormous mountains. When you stand in the center, you got to look way up to the sky to see the top of the mountains. And they're right there, surrounding totally. And it's this intact little town. They've got their own fire department. They Back then they didn't, but it was a, still an intact little village. And there was no roads to get up there, only the train. And so what he would do is he'd leave us for a week. You know, my mom had to spend a lot of time on her own raising us. And he would drive over and catch the train. And the train went one direction down to Vancouver. And they would just stop in the middle of the forest and dump him off. And then they'd continue going to Vancouver. And on the way back, He'd be standing on the side and they'd just stop and pick him up and take him back. And so the Mount Curry people would send three horses. Like two, these two guys would go get him, his father and son, and they'd bring an extra horse for my dad. And they'd just be sitting there for however long it took for the train to get there. And they'd pick him up and they'd bring him into the community. And he'd go house to house because they didn't have halls back then. He'd go house to house updating people and informing them of the importance of all the different important political things they needed to know and the things they needed to be doing in their communities. And then, um, you know, he'd spend a week sleeping on people's couches and then he'd go 
catch the train out. When you think about that, what kind of leader would do that today? You know, they want to be staying in hotels. They want cars. They, you know, they've gotten a little focused on things that aren't as important as actually meeting with the people goes. I have people coming up to me all the time and telling me, oh, your dad slept on my couch. You know, people from the Yukon, Northwest Territories, all these different places. Um, He was humble that way. You know, there were certain values that he lived by and he lived through, lived them his whole life. And one was being humble. Not He didn't even like staying in fancy hotels. He made the union staff all stay in a really low kind of grade hotel. Uh, when he left the AFN, well, it was still the National Indian Brotherhood. When he left the National Indian Brotherhood and came back to British Columbia, he uh, took over the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Assembly of First Nations came into Vancouver, or National Indian Brotherhood came into Vancouver and they hosted a meeting in one of the, like the Hyatt Regency, one of the nicer hotels, and all of them were staying at the Hyatt. My dad wouldn't let his staff stay at the Hyatt. He made them all stay at, um, I forget which hotel it was, but it was considerably a lower grade hotel because he said, we're not wasting the people's money on that kind of frivolous behavior. That's a value. You know, like valuing money. He always raised us and said things like, don't get yourself in debt. Because if you're in debt and you're working for somebody and that somebody tells you you're not allowed to support your people, you're not going to be able to quit. But if you are not in debt, you can just say, well, then I'm leaving. Walk away. Go get a different job who will allow you to support your people. These are all family values that he he instilled in our family. It was tough. You know, he's a residential school survivor. He was mean. As a father, he wasn't uh, loving. You know, I remember lots of times curling up in his arms. I mean, he was loving. But when he was really frustrated and stressed out, he was like a lot of residential school survivors, frustrated. Frustrated at, at the inability to move the mountain. And you know, our family, though, there was, um, I miss it. A lot of my older brothers and sisters have passed on, and we had a tightness. Like, if we ever disagreed about something, we never said it in public. There were like these rules we just lived by. And nobody's even there to enforce them anymore. Dad's long gone, but we still live by them because we understood the reason for them. And we would talk in private and hash out our differences. We were like glue. When when one of us was in need, we were like a well-oiled machine where we'd come together and support that family member. And now it's down to there's just two of us left. My older sister, Emmeline, and I are the only two left from the first family who were raised like that. You know, because our mother was a spiritualist. Yes, she went to residential school, but when she got out, she went home and got fully trained. And um, so she knew our ways. And somewhere in the 70s, when that whole emergence of all of our culture came up, she trained us all. So we had really strong values coming from both our mother and our father. And being the youngest of that group, I think I got maybe less damaged by my mom and dad 
and mostly damaged by the residential school, where so my older brothers and sisters were a bit damaged by being raised by two residential school survivors. I mean, I could tell stories about things that sad, really sad things that happened in our family. And we went through as much hardship and sadness as any Indigenous family. Like, I ate chicken feed for dinner one night when I was just three years old because there was nothing else to eat. You know, we ate the chickens and there was only chicken feed left. Things were tough. You know, we used to walk the side of the highway picking up bottles. We used to go to the garbage dump and my brothers would strip the cars of metal and pack it uptown to sell it. I remember wading through the garbage looking for stuff, anything useful. You know, that's, and that's a common story you'll hear from people from my generation all across Canada and probably United States. Um, I think that's one of the more remarkable things about about the book and, and the life story that I read through is that the book kind of demonstrates how clear the odds were sacked against the young George Manuel and kind of the struggles that communities and peoples of his generation after had had to go through. And in the case of your father, a residential school, which you had mentioned, he contracted tuberculosis, uh, which left him with a hip issue for the rest of his life. He left hospital with a grade two education and returned to communities uh, from which he was away for a while, but in that time had become devastated and um, leading to some of the stories that you had mentioned earlier. Uh, but there's also kind of an undercurrent of destiny uh, that seems to come through in the book, or at least some foreshadowing as to what was to come. His leadership potential, for example, was recognized early by his grandfather, who told him he would be a great leader someday, um, by Michael Anthony, a respected elder who, on his deathbed in the mid-1950s, told those around him that George was going to be a great leader someday, so he should be treated with respect. So clearly he was someone who was recognized with potential and, and a work ethic to match. Um, but what ultimately drew your dad into politics when he was ready to take that step um, it in was the mid-1950s? The, uh, it was the um, inadequacy of services to Indigenous people and the horrible treatment that we were living through. You know, a lot of people don't realize that there was harsh segregation against us. We weren't allowed in restaurants, even when I was a little girl. There was one restaurant in Kamloops, the Silver Grill, and that I remember that from being a little girl. I remember the name of it is <laughs> something. And that's part of why my family, uh, we really like Chinese food. It was a Chinese restaurant. It was Chinese people owned. And they let us in. But, you know, my dad, I was told this story by uh, one of the Michelles from the Adams Lake Reserve. He said that um, my dad went with two, um, denom- two different religious denominations. One was a priest and one was, a, I don't know. There was two or three of them that went with him and they did a sit-in together in a white restaurant. And they, the priest, and they just kept saying, you know, we're not leaving. You know what's right. They just kept telling this, this restaurant owner, you know what's right. We're not leaving until you serve him. And because they were from the religious denominations and they were representing like all the religious denominations in that territory and because all the people in there were religious, they didn't get thrown out the way that, you know, black people did in the United States because that would have been like 
<laughs> you just don't do that because everybody went to church in those days. And so he finally had to serve my dad. And so my father was instrumental in ending segregation. And there were so many cases like um, there was people getting arrested for hunting and fishing and they weren't allowed to have lawyers. It was against the law for an indigenous person to have a lawyer. Isn't that ridiculous? And yet there they are and they didn't speak very good English and they didn't understand white man's laws. They didn't even know what they did wrong. And so they were getting arrested and then thrown in jail. And they're the breadwinner, the, or the, not just the breadwinner, but the food, the person who hunts and fishes and brings the food into the house. And they have children. And there's a wife at home, pregnant with babies. And how is she supposed to feed herself while her husband's in prison? You know, and you see that. And you just, you've been raised a different way. Like his dad, his grandparents were medicine people. And he couldn't just sit by and do nothing. That was just wasn't in him. Just, just like he raised us, we can't sit by and just do nothing. You know, we have to get up and do something. And so he did. He trained and mentored under a white lawyer who um, took him under his wing. My dad was really charismatic. Gosh, I mean, he could talk you into anything. You know, he just was... <sighs> He just knew how to get to people, and he read books. One of the first books he made me read was a book called um, "How to Win and In- How to Win and Influ- Influence People." Um, how to win friends and influence people? Yeah, he made me read that when I was a young girl, and over and over again. And he was a great studier of human nature. My mom was too. I remember times sitting in the car. And just sitting there for hours watching people on the street or sitting in a meeting with my dad and just watching people. And he could walk into a meeting and he was like an orchestra, or like, um, what do you call those that lead the orchestra? Conductor. And he'd say, that person's going to say this. And he'd point at somebody. And then that person over there is going to say this. And then that person over there is going to say this. Because he knew how they all thought. Because he knew what the speaker was saying. And and he knew how they were going to react. Because he knew everybody in the room. And what their interests were. So he could know exactly what they were going to say. So he really impressed me that way. Later in life, I, um, I wound up deciding I wanted to get a degree in psychology. And so I took a lot of psychology and sociology classes. And... Um, it was partly because of him. You know, why did he do the things he did? Because he could. Because he knew in his heart what was right. And he set himself up in every way to be a winner, to figure it out. And he watched people and studied them and figured out how to motivate them. His early political career drew into communities all over the province um, with some of the anecdotes that you've, that you've uh, told already. Uh, he met and became friends with Andy Paul, as you mentioned, and he came to lead the organization that that Paul had founded. Um, Paul seemed to see in your dad the same potential as Dick Andrew and Michael Anthony. And um, George, your father, later credited Paul as the spark and the catalyst who inspired his national vision for the First Nations movement. Uh, 
And I was wondering, what was it that he took from Paul? Um, and what was his vision? So maybe what was the political tradition that your dad was working within um, in these early years of his, of his political life? The greatest thing was uniting people, uniting them by giving them all the information. So he, um, he developed a system where he had what he called his foot soldiers. He would train certain staff who, who could carry his words. Not everybody can carry George Manuel's words. Some people, everybody has a different talent. And he would choose those ones who had that talent. And then he would really train them about the issues. And then he would send them out to the community. So by the time he got to the, uh, a, the National Indian Brotherhood, he couldn't go to every community anymore because now he's traveling throughout the entire world and he's planning world meetings. And he did, he did, he continued to travel a lot, but he couldn't go to every community. So he trained people to go out there and meet the people. By the time he was organizing the Constitution Express, he did that same maneuver, training people to go out into the communities. There's all kinds of stories of people like Rosalie Tija with her little boy by her side driving all over British Columbia. You know, I have stacks of my dad's journals and um, it kind of breaks my heart thinking about his hard life, you know, and how hard he toiled for it. And one part of me, it breaks my heart. On one part of me, I just beam with pride because I, I try to live up to that. And he inspired that in me. So one time I heard this one guy who's telling me the story about he was sitting in the bar and he had got off work from the National Indian Brotherhood and he went to the bar and he was sitting kind of at the window looking out and he saw my dad walking with this big heavy. He used to carry this big, huge, wide briefcase, like three times the size of an average briefcase full of documents. And it was snowy and cold out. And my dad never bought himself fancy clothes. He had this kind of quilted uh, waterproof jacket, not even waterproof, water-resistant jacket. Um, and it wasn't beautiful or anything. And there he was with a toque and his gloves, and he'd walk so many steps, and then he'd set it down, and he'd rest, stand there resting. Then he'd pick it up, and he'd walk a few more steps, and he'd set it down, and he'd rest. And that man told me with such sad eyes that he is embarrassed today. He felt like I needed to hear that story, but he said he was so ashamed and embarrassed of himself that he didn't leave his beer and run out there and pack that briefcase for him. And it touched my heart that at least that man learned something from that. It breaks my heart to think of how hard, you know, he worked. Like, um, there's this film on the other side of the ledger. It's a National Film Board film. I read in Dad's journal that he got up at four in the morning, drove himself to the train station, took the train to Montreal. We lived in uh, Elmer, Quebec, just outside of Hull. So he drives to wherever the train was. I'm assuming it was in Hull. Takes the train to Montreal. And then he spends a grueling day, he says, all day long doing that narration for that film till his voice is just hoarse. And he can barely talk, but they keep pushing him and pushing him. You know, they wouldn't do that today. Today they'd have respect him in a book three days or something, but they booked him all in one day 
Well, part of it was he was so busy, he had to do it all in one day, but they were really hard on him. And then he finishes up and he takes the train back and drives himself home and just collapses when he gets home. He's so exhausted. And another time he's talking about there's a plane strike in Canada. But the, and he's living in Ottawa, or he's living in Elmer and working in Ottawa. And the women in British Columbia who have helped build his career from the BC Association of Women are, it might have been that, oh, the homemakers, sorry, it's the homemakers, have made an appointment with him and he's supposed to be at their annual general meeting. But there's an airplane strike. So what does he do? He drives down to the U.S. and he takes a a bus all across the United States and gets himself to Vancouver. A bus, our national leader, on a bus for days. And he makes light of it in his journal. He's like, it's great not to have to drive and I get to see all this country and I get to catch up on my paperwork and I get to catch up on my journaling. I mean, he just looks on the bright side and those women deserve this. Those women are important and I have to be there for them. No plane strike is going to keep me from my responsibility. So I'm reading these kind of words in his journal and I couldn't help but be the person I am today because of all of his teachings. Um, you mentioned a lot of the travel, his commitment to the struggle, his commitment to the cause, um, and a lot of the, his efforts and effort of those like him in his generation begin, begin to bear some fruit um, in the early 1960s as there begins to kind of emerge efforts to unite First Nations across the country into a single um, national uh, organization. Um, so it's a period of, of, of political optimism, at least in the early 1960s. Um, but it's also around this time um, that your mother gives um, your father a, an ultimatum. And, and it's one of, the, one of the sadder stories and one of the, the stories that tells the tale of the human cost of, or the family cost of, 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 of political commitment and political activism. Um, gives him an ultimatum to give up politics or leave her and the kids and he had a young and growing family, and the choice couldn't have been easy, but he chooses uh, politics. And I was just wondering how uh, your father's balance between his growing public profile, how he balanced that with the responsibilities of his private and family life. Um, what did family life look like at this time um, for you and, and also for him? Yeah, and I have to go back to being a residential school survivor on this one. I had a talk with Mary Paul. Mary Thomas, sorry about that. Mary Thomas, she's the one who gave him that advice and and he wound up choosing leadership. I had a stern talk with her because she used to go around through our territory. And, you know, she's a, a elder, really esteemed, well-known, respected elder. But I felt like I really had to tell her my feelings on it. And uh, I told her, you know, I went a special trip to her house, sat with her. <laughs> had a really lovely visit with her. And then I said, I just really have to talk to you about this. I just want you to know my feelings on this because you gave him that advice to leave us. And that's how we wound up in residential school. And that's how we wound up tortured and damaged. I told her, a leader will be a better leader if he's a good 
he or she is a good parent. That's where you first learn to lead, as you learn to raise your children right. Your first responsibility to the creator, to the universe, is if you bring children into this world, you are responsible for them. If you can take care of those children and raise them right, you deserve to be a leader. You don't advise as an elder or as an anybody, a confidant, you don't advise somebody to leave their family, to pursue a political career. Yes, he became a great leader. Yes, he made strides for us. and We would be nowhere where we are today if it had not been for him. But how much further would we have been had he waited a little bit? and raised us right, got us through our hardest years. You know, I could have been doing the kind of work I'm doing now if I had neglected my children. I could have been doing it a long time ago. No, I waited. I waited till they were finished school and they were ready to go to university before I really dove in. Everything I did up until that point was in preparation for that day. And as soon as they got old enough, then I dove in feet first. I could have been doing this work I'm doing now 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and 20 years ago, and then by now I would be so much further. But when you were a leader, just like when you were a parent, you are role modeling behaviors to everybody else. So yes, he made all these political strides that you mentioned, but he also role modeled a great deal. I'm not the only, his children are not the only ones who have all these things I'm saying, all these teachings that are living this way. All of the people that were closest to him, they were just like me. If you interview them, they would say these same things, that he taught them the same things. He taught them this integrity, this, all these things about leadership and strategy because they were as observant as I was. And it's not like I got all sorts of special time with him. I had to go see him at the office. He was traveling a lot. I had to hang out and go to conferences and sit around and watch and wait and help out with conferences to get these teachings. It's not like he came home and taught me at home. So, you know, about that, I think Mary was wrong to say what she said. And when we look at today, we have made these strides in the wellness movement. The women picked up the wellness movement in the 80s, and they just had, there was wellness conferences all over the place, and women all across North America, Indigenous women, were building the wellness movement men came in after them and started following in their footsteps. But through all of those teachings is now we are in a place to recognize what's right for the family and to understand that the damage that residential skill did to the the indigenous family systems model, how they displaced it and destroyed it. And so there's, there's that whole movement that's happening that my sister Vera was part of and that I was part of to, to a different degree in a different area of it. But we were, and my sister Emmeline, who um, studies social work, we were all 
the women in our family were all part of this wellness movement. My mom in her later life became a drug and alcohol counselor. And she was, we were all part of the concerned Aboriginal women's movement in the, um, in the late seventies, early eighties and the Indian child caravan who fought against the 60s scoop that was in the early eighties. And those women's groups rolled into become the constitution express. So when you look at, look at all the women who were part of the last department of Indian affairs takeover here in Vancouver, those are all the same women who were all involved in the constitution express. And we had our children by our sides. We took our children everywhere to all of those meetings and raised them up in those meetings. So those children are children who are involved today in the movements that have to be happening to protect our Aboriginal title and rights and our families. So did he do the wrong thing? Yeah. Did we still yield a great advantage? Yeah. And I think, you know, being a spiritual person, I have to say, well, you know, I think really at the end of the day, I think that what was meant to happen the way it happened, the way it was meant to happen. And it was a difficult choice for him. And he didn't want to see the despair. He didn't realize the despair he would cause in his children and the struggle. You know, I look at my life today and I said this to someone one time and they kind of laughed at me as if I was being egotistical, but I wasn't. I was saying, you know, can you imagine if I had been raised right in a mother and fam father family by those parents, you know, yeah, they were residential school survivors, but they were also incredibly dynamic, intelligent strategists and studiers of human nature. If I had been raised in a really good family, how much further I would be. I would be another George Manuel. All of his children would be. But because of what he did, we were all just bits and pieces of him and her. Great. Thank you for, thank you for that. Um, some of the work that you said at the, at the family, or particularly the role of um, women in the movement that had long been unrecognized, um, it freed up, as you said, a lot of the male participants to take leading positions in um, the, the struggle in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and what animated, at least in your father's case, a lot of his work was the struggle for Indigenous unity. But it wasn't really until the release of the Government of Canada's statement on Indian policy or the White Paper in 1969 that this dream of his came closer to fruition. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about what the White Paper was and why it proved so decisive in fostering unity, not only in, in British Columbia with the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs, um, but at the national level as well with the, the formation of the National Indian Brotherhood. Okay, but I'm just going to back up to that last question, just add one piece to that. Um, what I did as a parent is I worked on breaking the cycle. So I went to a lot of workshops. Barbara Coloroso is a, a really well-known uh, facilitator on parenting. I went to a lot of her workshops and training and read her books. I went to Claudia Black workshops, read her books, Jane Middleton Moss, put myself through a lot of training. I studied psychology and sociology as much to help myself as to learn about how to help my people. And I think if he had grown up in a different time or 
if, if wellness was on our radar when he was raising us, he could have been equipped, like a lot of leaders, to know the right thing to do. And I'm not angry at my dad for the decision he made at all. I might have been at one time, but I'm not anymore because I think he made the right decision. Uh, it, it's just that that's the way it, it rolled out, is that the politics Aboriginal title and rights was the first thing on the table and the wellness movement came later. So it's just unfortunate. That's all. It's unfortunate. I had to live through what I had to live through. But on the other hand, I found that all the work that I did to help my people was fueled by the pain that I suffered through, just like the work he did was fueled by the pain he suffered through. Now, getting to the white paper policy, I actually made a movie called Unseated Chiefs, and it's all about the white paper policy, and I actually have a copy of it right here, um, all marked up and everything, and there's um, there's points in the white paper, and the movie goes over those points in, in real clarity. I've done a lot of reading and research. I've interviewed people that were actually at the meeting. My dad chaired the first major meeting about the white paper in November of 1969, in Kamloops, BC, and all the chiefs were there from British Columbia. He was actually working for Harold Cardinal by this time and living in Edmonton. And uh, my father was staying in touch with the BC leaders, trying to make sure that they were getting properly versed on the white paper. And at one point, him and Harold were on the phone calling different leaders. And like uh, Philip Paul was one of the leaders they called from um, from the island, from uh uh, Saanich uh, near Victoria and Philip Paul was and my dad were really close and uh, my dad used to live in Cowichan uh, I lived with my dad in the Cowichan and he traveled and, and worked with Philip a lot on the island so he called Philip and he said what's the um, climate like over there regarding white paper and Philip said the people are getting fooled by the language like when you read those points of the white paper some of them sound like really good points, really good things. But you have to then go on to read the description. And then you have to understand government and what they mean by those descriptions. And I outline all of that in my movie. So um, he called a couple of other leaders, uh, Don Moses, and um, there was another interior leader he called, Clarence Jules, a few others. And they all said the same thing. Uh, people are getting fooled by it. They all seem like they, they want to vote for it. And so Harold told my dad, you got to get back to BC and straighten those guys out. And he said, I'll even come over there if I have to. So my dad took a quick trip and, and I'm reading my dad's journals and he's in three different reserves, not close reserves either, <laughs> reserves that are quite a ways from each other in a day day after day after day he's lobbying all the way through and so he gets them to plan that november 1969 meeting and he gets philip paul to agree to be one of the main planners for it and don moses and uh, a few others he gets the women involved saying they'll fundraise so rose charlie saying yeah she'll fundraise for it he's got the machine moving and, you know, the interesting thing about when I made the movie, I kept thinking to myself, geez, I wish I had some audio footage or some video footage or, or even some minutes to read. And I had this box of stuff my dad had given me, and there were some reel-to-reel -reel tapes in it. 
And I never listened to them because I didn't have a reel-to-reel player. Well, I got my hands on a reel-to-reel player and I listened to it and darned if it wasn't that meeting, the actual white paper policy meeting at the historic November 1969 meeting in Kamloops. And Harold Cardinal is on there speaking. And so I put that in my movie. Um, But uh, it was like that. It was like the young people were totally fooled. The young ones who were then at that time attending university were totally fooled and thought those were good things. And the chiefs had to teach those young folks. So when I was interviewing like um, Ed Newman and um, uh, he was saying, yeah, those young folks, he said, man, it took a long time to talk some sense into their heads. They just really believed it was a good thing. And so um, it was really hard to change the direction of that ship, but my dad got it changed and everybody got on board. And, and it kind of looks like it happened overnight because the union was formed at that meeting. Before that meeting, it was the Native, um, the Native Indian Brotherhood, which was Andy Paul and then my father's organization. And then there was the Native Brotherhood, which was the fishing organization, who was really powerful. And they, the fishing organization organization gave up all of their, well, Ed talks about this in my movie, gave up all of their political interests, went back to just fishing and gave it all over and the union was formed. And then you see around that, just before and just after that time, you see that the Alberta Brotherhood, Saskatchewan Brotherhood, the Manitoba Brotherhood, all of the different um, provincial organizations were formed just before or just after white paper was released. So you think unity was formed overnight, but no, because you remember when I was talking about Andy Paul? They were already reunified. They were already talking about all these issues. And in fact, the Canadian government had sent out uh, meetings across Canada, and I talk about that too in my movie, And these meetings were happening for the whole year before the white paper was released. And they were with all the different communities and they were asking the communities, what do you want? And communities were talking about it. And those are all in notes and meeting notes that are held by the government. There's volumes and volumes and volumes of those meeting notes where the indigenous people are saying what they want. And what was supposed to happen was those things were supposed to be compiled. Those asks and requests were supposed to be compiled. And from that was supposed to be designed a policy. But what they came forward with instead totally disregarded all of that as if it was just an exercise. Like like today they have something they call pre-informed consent, but it isn't really. It's like they kind of tell you, this is what we're going to do. They stomp on your rights, and then they just do whatever they want to do. Well, this was the same sort of thing. The white paper policy is what they said. This is what you wanted. Here's the white paper policy. And um, the people feel real, felt really cheated because that is not what the, they had spent a whole year in these um, sessions talking about what they wanted and needed. And instead, the government presented them with the white policy. So it wasn't automatic. It wasn't something that happened really fast. Uh, So when Harold wrote 
the red paper. He had a lot of time to think about it because he all—he was already thinking, I bet you these buggers are going to cheat us. I bet you they aren't even going to use our ideas. So he was just waiting for that white paper to be re- released. And right away, he was ready to start writing the, the red paper. Um, thank you for that. It, it really does seem in the way the history is written that unity a was forged in the struggle against the white paper like kind of it kind of uh sidesteps the long history and tradition of organizing different parts of the country and it really does read as if rejection was instantaneous and people immediately grasped what was at what was at stake so the important context he provided there is very interesting um thank you for that mm-hmm. um another thing that was uh controversial um was the and had particular ramifications for communities in, in British Columbia was the the Calder decision in, in 1973 and there the, the court seemed to give implicit recognition to the existence of, of Aboriginal title in parts of the country that had not uh, according to the Canadian laws understanding been ceded by treaty um, and indigenous organizations were initially excited as they thought that it meant recognition of their lands resources and government. Um, but instead, the government came with a policy, countered with a policy that was instead um, centered on extinguishment as opposed to recognition. Um, and your father referred to the case in the, the Battle of the James Bay Cree as termination. And I was just wondering, what was the stake here in the definition um, and struggle over Aboriginal rights and title? And, and why does it still matter in places like British Columbia in particular? Well, in BC, we didn't have treaties. There were some smaller treaties, um, like uh, Treaty 8 is kind of attached to BC, and there was some smaller, less significant treaties on the island. But for the majority of the territory in British Columbia, there were no treaties, ever. So this is unceded territory. But... If you were to read the doctrines of discovery and terra nullius and how they apply and built the foundation of the laws that have to do with Aboriginal title and and land title regardless across Canada, in my opinion, you have to admit that all territories in Canada are unseated because they were stolen through terra nullius, which is, if you read that, it's absurd. It's absurd that all of the lands were stolen in that way and that the government rationalized it with terra nullius. So in my opinion, all the land is unseated. You know, and so when the, the treaty process started, they call it the oh, to the comprehensive land claims process, which is what they first called it. Uh, it was unfair right from the start. It Because it says right in it, I actually downloaded every single one of the treaty agreements uh, for British Columbia and the Nishka Treaty, and I compared them all to the Nishka Treaty, and there's a line in every one of them and I've had lawyers tell me I was wrong on this, but I've had to like highlight the point and show it to them. That There's a line in there that says that Indigenous people have to relinquish their Aboriginal title before they can open 
and enter into the negotiation process for their land claims. And they have to hire negotiators. And they wind up way in debt when they hire the negotiators because then they can't get out once they're in there. And uh, that's kind of like me saying to you, uh, yeah, I want to buy your car, but I want you to sign over title to me first, and then we'll negotiate a price. But you can't negotiate for yourself. You have to hire a lawyer, and they'll talk to my lawyer, and then we'll negotiate a price, and I'll pay you what we feel is right. That's absurd, right? You wouldn't do that. Who, Who in their right mind would do that? And so... That's one of the things my brother Art fought against a lot at the, toward the end of his, his career before he passed on, is trying to open people's eyes about that absurd you know, condition. What a lot of people don't understand is that when Confederation happened, uh, can, the Canadian federal government controls interests on crown lands everywhere in Canada except British Columbia. British Columbia, the province, made an agreement back then. They said they didn't want to join Confederation. They were totally happy over here on their own. Yeah, they were able to kill off enough Indians to make it, uh, make them able to control our lands and territories and to control us. And they were reaping all the benefits from our resources. Why? What, what's the benefit of joining Canada? So Canada made a deal that the province of British Columbia would retain control over the crown lands in British Columbia, which makes it really difficult to negotiate a land claims deal because you have two governments at the table. You have the provincial and the Canadian. So they have to agree together on the conditions. So that's part of why it's been really uh difficult. And the provincial government here in British Columbia has been so used to just pillaging our territories and having free reign over pillaging. For example, at Sun Peaks um, Ski Resort, one developer was able to buy huge tracts of lands up there for pennies on the market value. And then what he did is he turned it all into lots and sold them off for millions and millions of dollars. And where the government reaps its benefit is from the taxation on those dollars. And that was our territories, our traditional Sequoiamic territories is unceded territory that the provincial government sold off. And that's what my nieces, Kanahus and Mayuk were fighting. And both of them wound up in federal, in, in, the, in the prison system, not jail, prison. They both did prison time fighting that. And Arthur was working with them, guiding them through that whole process, and they lost. The developers won. And now Kanahus is on the front line fighting Kinder Morgan with her tiny house warriors. You know, Mm -hmm. we are at the mercy of these court injunctions that the corporations use to separate us from our Aboriginal title and rights. And the federal government and the provincial government are completely in bed with them. Just on that point about about debt and being able to walk away, one of the lessons that your father tried to impart to you, it's it, it seems to be um, uh, the case in British Columbia with the British Columbia Treaty process, where people or communities who have signed on to participate in that particular process, they've accumulated 
um, mm -hmm. hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in debt through the course of almost a generation now of negotiation. Mm -hmm. And the expenses for those, those legal fees are to come, I think, from um, financial settlements that are going to be awarded at negotiations. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are, because they are in debt, they are unable to walk away from negotiations that to date have proved unsuccessful and ultimately it lead to to extinguishment um so it just seems that the words or the lessons that your father mentioned all those years ago have a very real political residence even to this day yeah they sound like really simple life lessons really simple principles to live by like when you just say them they sound really simple but then you have to imagine the application of them in a variety of bigger scenarios, like what you just mentioned. Um, so health troubles begin to beset your father, starting with a heart attack on the eve of the Dene Declaration on Nationhood in 1975. And he resigns from the presidency of the Brotherhood in 1976. Uh, this is not so much a retreat so much as a refocusing of efforts that sees him return to British Columbia and take an active role in, in the popular or grassroots movements of the period such as the People's Movement and, and the Constitution Express. Now, Tony, was this a shift in his perspective on, on politics and political organizing? Um, or was it just kind of another aspect of his vision to politicize and empower the grassroots in addition to building official organizations? It was really a return to his initial ideas. He never wanted to be the national chief. And he told Harold, he told a lot of people. In fact, he didn't even lobby well, you know, he never did really lobby. He never believed in it because he said, you can't, you can't tell an indigenous person how to vote and you can't trust them. You can change their mind at the last minute. You, you just have to be the best leader you can be. And, and if they believe in you, they'll vote for you. And if they don't, they won't. And so Harold was urging him. And he just said, he finally gave in and he said, okay, I'll let you nominate me. He said, but I'm not going to lobby at all. He said, in fact, I'm going to go on vacation and I'll come back from vacation, you know, right, right around the time the election happens. And that's when um, I was already down in LA with my sister Vera and him and Emmeline and uh, his second wife, Marlene and, and their they had two kids at that time. They all drove down and met me down there. And we had a lovely time. And then uh, all came back to BC. And right after that, he went um, and was elected. And he really didn't want to do it. And so at the beginning, the first place he went after he was elected was to um, small boys camp in Alberta. to chief small boy. And he went through ceremonies and sweats there at um, Kootenai Plains at their sacred grounds. And um, then he went off to go become the national chief. And he, why he didn't really want to do it is because he didn't really see an organization like that being able to truly lead the people because it's so removed from the people. And he made the hugest effort when he was national chief to go out and still visit all the communities as hard as that was on him. But today, you can see the, you can see what he meant. The Assembly of First Nations is a joke. It's a terrible organization. It doesn't represent us at all. It's horrible. It turned into after he left it, little by little, 
had turned into what he knew it, it could become. It would become that it wouldn't actually represent the people. And actually it goes against. You know, I can't say that as much now that they have Roseanne as national chief. I haven't been observing them as much, but I, what I do know is she didn't, she didn't dismantle it and rebuild it. So it's still the messed up organization it was, and all, all she's doing is trying to field fires. So I don't, you know, as much as I like Roseanne, I don't think that it's, it, she, she can turn the boat around. I, I, th I think I know what it needs to turn the boat around, and it's not just going in and doing the best you can. <laughs> you have to actually have a strategy and a plan for turning it. But um, he felt... Yes, it was his health, and his health was really bad. I mean, yeah, he had that heart attack, but he had heart attacks before that that he just didn't tell every the public about. He had a lot of different health issues he didn't tell the public about. And um, he came home as much for his health as he did to um, turn his boat around, to continue to do greater work than he knew that the National Indian Brotherhood could do. And he proved that in, with the Constitution Express. The National Indian Brotherhood could not stop the Constitution. If he had sat back and done nothing, that Constitution would have passed, and today there would be no reservations, and there would be no rights for our people. We would be ordinary citizens today. But he proved something with that constitution expressed that the people are the true ones with the power. And, and he exemplified that for all of us, all of us young people coming up. We watched that. We were part of it. Torino, I want to thank you for taking the time you, you have today. I know we've taken a lot of it. So I just have one final question um, for you today. Um, in 1975 and 1976, as he was hosting the first international con conference of the World Council of Indigenous Peoples, and he was about to withdraw from the uh, the Brotherhood. He happened to appear before the Berger Commission and talked about what he saw as the basis of the new relationship, quote unquote, a term we've frequently heard um, many times in, in the decades since. And in it, he said the relationship, the new relationship would be based on, quote, neither apartheid nor assimilation, but participation, participation on terms that will recognize our national identity and will ultimately strengthen Canada as a whole. And I was just wondering, what was his vision of a new relationship? Um, what did liberation look like for him? And what is the relevance of his vision uh, for Indigenous politics today? You know, he traveled the world and he looked at a lot of different models. And he took, he talked about different pieces and parts of those different models he saw that could work. And the nation to nation is meant to be where we have the same powers and authorities to meet directly with the federal government, all of us. So we're not at the provincial level and we're not at the municipal level. We are at the exact same level as the Canadian government deciding our, our destiny. Today, those um, modern treaties they place Indigenous people at the municipal level. And we see how much power the municipal level has when we saw Burnaby fighting against Kinder Morgan and having their vote completely squashed 
by the federal government. You know, they're, they're not listened to. Municipalities aren't listened to. The province and the federal government can override anything a municipality says they want. They are the lowest end of government, and those comprehensive trees put us at that level. And that's not where we wanted to be. That wasn't his vision. His vision was up at the Canadian level to be equal to the Canadian. Sorry, I can't hear you. Are you on Sorry. mute? What do you think the relevance of his analysis and, and politics um, is today? I think everything that he stood for and everything that he worked for and everything that he envisioned for us, we should still be working toward. I think it's all still relevant. And I think that leaders should all be required to read the fourth world and brotherhood to nationhood. And, and they should understand and know our history because you know, the same things that the, the chiefs that led my father, all those chiefs that came together, you know, when I talk about this in the fourth world, I called it the unseated chiefs. Those chiefs are different than the chiefs today. Bill Muscle talks about it in my movie. He talks about how as soon as there was money, a whole different type of chief stepped forward and pushed those other chiefs aside. The chiefs that were willing to work for no money, just for the ability to help their people. Those were the true leaders, and they got pushed aside. We need to, uh, you, you, and you hear the young people saying that they don't want to follow the chiefs today because they're DIA chiefs, and the DIA chiefs only have the right to govern DIA lands, only the reservations. They have no right to talk for the traditional territories that thought is should belong to if they still have uh, hereditary chiefmanship. Hereditary chiefs are people born into leadership, just like I was born to my father, and my father was born to leadership. He's not a hereditary chief. He never was my father, but he was raised by grandparents who specifically raised him for leadership, a different kind of leadership, the leadership he took on. I think that all we need to do is listen to our forefathers and every decision we make needs to be based on the foundation of working for the future generations. And then decision-making becomes very simple, becomes crystallized. Because if that is your guiding motive, it's easy to answer all the hard questions. No, you don't sell the resources. No, you don't let corporations run over you. Yes, you need to fight for your Aboriginal title and define that. You have to fight to make sure that the court decisions that were for us are actually upheld and defined and then upheld. You need to reconnect with the people and give the people the information. Great. Um, so once again, the book is called Brotherhood to Nationhood, um, George Emanuel and the Making of the Modern Indian Movement. Uh, with authors Peter McFarlane and Doreen Manuel. Uh, the second edition was published in October 2020 by Between the Lines Books in Toronto. Thank you again, Doreen, um, for your time. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you.